Welcome everybody and thank you for listening. My name is Victoria Lewis and I'm the CEO of Verndeen, which is a workplace behavioural consultancy specialised in helping people and companies creating kinder, fairer and more productive workplaces. It's International Women's Day and it's a day to really celebrate and this year's theme of breaking bias is one which is so close to my heart as I spend most of my working time helping people to surface and navigate our biases. You know, we're all biased. And the question is just how broad and how deep do they go? And how do they play out in our lives? I'm delighted today to be joined by Royanne Ned, who is the Global Director of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging at Oliver Wyman. She's also the Interim Deputy Chief Diversity Officer at Marshall McLennan. Royanne is a DNI expert, speaker and author, and describes herself as passionate and dedicated to helping organizations embrace the principles of diversity and inclusion, focusing on intersectional feminism, unconscious bias, and inclusive leadership. So you're busy, Royanne. Hello, and welcome today, and thank you so much for giving up your time. Hi, Victoria. Thanks a lot. And yeah, just a little bit busy. <laughs> All right. So hopefully we're going to be chatting about some things that are really very much part of your day job, but I suspect they might be just part of your life job. So if we can kind of start with you, just telling us a little about your life story and I guess what led you to your work, Ryan. Sure, thanks a lot, Victoria. So I guess it goes back further than some people's careers. So mine goes right back to I was born in Guyana, so that's a country in America. And it's a super patriarchal society. So every value is placed on you if you're a boy and if you're a girl, it feels like you're second place. And I just simply couldn't accept that. To be really honest, I couldn't accept it. I questioned it for all the time I lived there during my teenage years. And I asked my dad about it. He was similarly patriarchal, a lot of focus on the male child and boys and their value. And I mean, to show you how patriarchal he was, I remember when Barack Obama was made president the first time and I called him and I said, Daddy, we have a black president in the world and in America, in the free world, as they call it. And he said to me, I know, dear. And he always called me dear. And he said, but there's just one thing about him, just one thing I don't like. And I said, what's that? He said, he hasn't got any sons. Oh, wow. And that's just to give everyone a sense of the value that was placed on boy children at the time. So I found it interesting, but I found it something confronting. And honestly, that kind of confrontational approach to things I perceive to not be fair, not be equitable, is what really brought me to the work I do today. And then various life experiences. So working in a fame network, as we called it back then, just after... Stephen Lawrence's tragic murder, understanding, you know, just as the Race Relations Act was being changed, being part of those conversations in a voluntary capacity really just drove me to want to know more, want to understand more about how I could drive change. And that became the blueprint for what is now my profession and my career. Wow, thanks. So when we chatted the other day, you said to me, Ryan, you know what, Victoria, it takes a brave organisation to employ me. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why are you that scary? Well, I'm not scary, but what I am is committed to change. And I've been doing this work for too long. So including, you know, my voluntary forays into this work and even beyond, I've been doing this work for over 20 years. So I've got to the point in my career where 
change is inevitable if you work with me. And sadly, too many organizations still pay lip service to this work and they still want to be comfortable and they still prioritize comfort over change. And so for me, if you work with me, then you're appreciating and acknowledging that you're ready to take a journey of change and true change and to be challenged. So that's why it can be hard, I think, to work with me. And you have to be brave because this isn't going to be about the comfortable experience. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, after the murder of George Floyd, so many of our clients appointing DNI officers and DNI managers, there will be different titles. One thing I saw a lot of was just the lack of power in that role. And is that what you mean about the lip service? Well, I think the lack of power is just one core element of the lip service. I think there's a real misunderstanding of the role and the importance of this work itself. And, you know, you see TV programs with chief diversity officers in a small broom cupboard that has been repurposed because organizations suddenly have recognized they need to have this name somewhere on their website, but they still don't know and indeed want to use the expertise of the individual. So I think it's not just about power. It's also about the fact that people are recruiting the wrong people into this role. I speak all the time that lived experience doesn't make you able to be a diversity professional. It's investment in time, skills, research, learning. It's taken up the mantle to really change yourself as well. So change comes from within first, and this is a tough job to do if you're not willing to do change on yourself first in order to then take other people on that journey. So I think the challenge is not just the power, but why would you hand the power to someone that in your heart of hearts you know isn't qualified to do the job? And you said in a recent post that the work that you do is uncomfortable, emotionally taxing, distressing at times, and challenging. Do you have a choice about whether you do this, Ryan? I mean, I know why I do my work, but when you describe it like that, it's kind of like, blimey, why, why do it? What drives you? Do you feel like you have a choice? So, you know what, if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I would have been like, of course I have a choice, but I don't. Uh, I think I realized after George Floyd's murder that I don't have a choice. And when I reflected on my career journey and career path, and I'm a qualified chartered accountant, I could have taken a very different route and frankly probably a more profitable route but I chose to stay in this field and chose to continue doing the work so for me this is my life purpose is to change the world and it's one step at a time it's one person at a time and that really for me is why I do this work it goes beyond now a professional decision I think is my calling and it's definitely my passion and I had a conversation with my coach recently And we started talking about how do I define myself? What's next over the next few years? And it occurred to me that I don't know these days that I can decouple my identity from the work I do, from being an expert and an advocate for inclusion and diversity and equity. I'm not actually sure that I can any longer decouple that from who I am as a person. Yeah, thank you. Let's move into the space of bias. At Berndine, we talk a lot about bias. And in my work, I work with leaders specifically. And I do come across some barriers at times. Sometimes it's whether people think they're biased at all. The connotation in their minds is, well, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not homophobic. Open square brackets, insert the protected characteristic, which you and I, Ryan, know goes much wider than those. But I can't be biased because I'm not an ist. 
other times I think people accept that they're biased. They can see that they've got a warmer connection with some attributes more than others. And I call that kind of gravitational pull towards people and they get that, but then they hit the blocker uh, or, or really query whether their bias impacts their decisions or their everyday behaviors. And I think in particular, many people query that loaded privilege word. And I say loaded from an impact perspective. So let's start with what bias means to you. And Ryan, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on a conversation I'm having a lot with many members of my team at the moment, which is whether bias is and can be unconscious or whether in 2022, in reality, it is conscious. How can we say otherwise now? It's all over. What are your thoughts on that? So I think the science is clear that there is such a thing as unconscious bias. So I think we can't run away from the fact that unconscious bias is a real thing. It is simply our brain's shortcut to manage lots of information. So we put things into buckets and that creates preferences for and against things. So when we start to remove the people element, I think it's easier for people to understand that bias exists and sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious. So for instance, unconscious bias that most people have is probably when they're driving home, they take a certain route. And the bias is that that route is faster, easier, less complicated. But depending on how long you've been driving and how long you've lived somewhere, there's a strong likelihood that there's a different route that could work just as well. But your habit has been formed now. And that tells you this is the best route. Uh, it's why people argue with their sat nav for instance, because the sat-nav has more information from an objective point of view, but it's your bias arguing against the sat-nav. So I think we can agree that scientifically there is a part of your brain and a portion of your brain that manages preferences, and that's really what bias is. And then when we think of conscious biases, for instance, again, taking people out of it, because I think when you think of people decisions, everyone becomes defensive because they want to be seen as a good person. And if you're not a good person, then de facto, you must be a bad person, which is incorrect. So if I think about one of the biases I have, if we take away people, is Apple products. I am habitually buying Apple products because I've now become used to and accustomed. I have formed a habit of using Apple products. So I am biased towards Apple products because they are easier for me to deal with. Now, when you strip that back, the reason they're easier is because I've used them enough to develop that comfort with them. So then that's a form of affinity bias. I know how to use you, you're warm, you're familiar. Oh, look, there's my new iPhone, there's my iPad. And that's all that we do, but we do it with people too. And that's what's challenging. But we make the people conversation much more loaded than, for instance, the technological choice conversation. So that's what I'd like people to know first is that biases exist. I'm conscious that I'm biased towards Apple products. I don't take any steps to learn how to use other products like Samsung or Android products because I'm lazy. Now, the challenge is a lot of us are lazy when we deal with people decisions as well. It feels easier, it's faster. We come to decisions much more quickly, so we go with that because it's comfortable and it feels good. The problem is with people, there's a longer-term impact and it influences other people's outcomes as well, which is why we talk about dismantling systems, we talk about privilege. And for me, when I talk about privilege, it's that Rather than it being a leg up, it's actually the absence of an impediment. And again, when you reframe it to privilege as being the absence of an impediment, it's the absence for many white people to 
be fearful if a police officer stops them on a busy street while they're driving. It's the absence of when I go into a shop, I often will be conscious of the shop assistants who put the money on the counter, even when my hand is outstretched because they'd rather not touch me. But the absence of even considering that your race is part of that conversation is privilege, as opposed to it being a leg up, because I think it's important to just reframe those things. So to recap, yes, unconscious bias exists. Conscious bias definitely exists. And I think one of the challenges is you, me, as professionals, we've spent a lot of time trying to make people aware and conscious of their unconscious biases to help them take actions to overcome them. The issue is that we've spent collectively so much time uncovering unconscious biases that now people have very conscious biases that they are choosing not to take action on. And therefore, those things are no longer their unconscious bias. So I laugh when people say, oh, well, that's just my unconscious bias against women. Yeah, it's not unconscious if you can name it. The moment you can name it, you have brought it to consciousness. And now you are making a choice and a very active choice not to do anything about it. Yeah. And it lets us off the hook, doesn't it? Because that, yeah. that labelling was just like, ah, well, we've all got it. So, you know, I'm wired, off I go. Yeah, I love that definition because certainly I've talked about a leg up with privilege. So I love that kind of absence. It's a sort of, it's hard for me to see the, the power of being white because white is my norm. Mm-hmm. I can think more consciously when I'm walking along a dark street at night than my partner has to, for example, because I am overtly conscious of being a woman at that time. So it's mm-hmm. around about what's your norm. And as you say, as soon as somebody starts saying, yeah, well, that is my unconscious mind, come, you, you, you know it, you <laughs> see? So let's get on to allyship because breaking bias is everything. I think there's a lot that we just talked about, you especially around educating what, what I might call surfacing, learning more, reading more, understanding more, listening to understand. But I often think if we're talking about workplaces, which, you know, at the end of the day, they're a social environment, but there's a ton of power and rules and systems and processes in there that make some of that quite difficult to navigate. So what systems need to be in place, do you think, to support allyship? There's only funny The term allyship, more and more I become uncomfortable with the concept of allyship because I think allyship, when we think about, you know, standing together with people, standing side by side with them in solidarity with them, suggests that the allies have no benefit to gain when they take these steps. Allies have everything to gain through this work. So if we think about it, more diverse workplaces lead to innovation. They lead to that level of discomfort that drives everyone to be a little bit better than they were before. It drives interesting builds on ideas that create new ways of doing things. And those things are business imperatives. They're not personal imperatives. So when we talk about allyship, I think we lean too much into the individual approach to allyship rather than if you're a good business leader, having a diverse group of people makes good business sense. And so There's something in it for you when you drive this agenda as well. So I think that's one of the things I'd like us to reframe is the concept of allyship isn't about a benevolent act that 
people do for a different group. It's very much about something that's done in the corporate world, drive business change. I also think it's about the systems that enable us to disrupt and undermine bias. So for instance, if we take recruitment, when we think about bias and allyship, you have to create a recruiting system that has so many people involved that their biases outweigh each other and cancel each other. For instance, you have three people doing an interview the likelihood that those three people have exactly the same group of biases is pretty slim. And therefore, what you do is create an opportunity for candidates to disrupt biases for one person, balance them out for someone else. And that's how you create a more equitable playing field. It's not always about the obvious things and it's not about completely diminishing and getting rid of bias. I don't think we ever will, but it's about finding ways to mitigate and redress the balance. It's also as simple as asking yourself questions about equity. And I think that's one of the things I really want people to understand. We talked a lot for years about equal opportunities and equality, and that suggested we would treat everyone the same. And equal opportunity, all that says is that, for instance, I've got a job I'm advertising, anyone can apply, but I'm not going to check who gets the job, and I'm not going to check what that means for my organization, because I made sure that everyone could apply. And the shift when we talk about equity is actually looking at the outcome. Are people having equitable outcomes through a process? Because no process that is well-defined that deals with human beings should ever give you exactly the same result every single time. So if you have processes giving you the same result, then you have to ask yourself some questions. And can I share an anecdote on this topic? Absolutely. So I remember working with an organization and looking at their promotion data and in their promotion data, they had not promoted women that year. There hadn't been any significant number of women promoted compared to men. And when I talked to them, they said, no, we work on a meritocracy. Only the best get through. We are confident that this is the right outcome. And I said, OK, I'm really sorry to have wasted your time. Can you please send your recruitment team in? And at that point, people look very confused. What do you mean the recruitment team? And now the issue for me is that if you have a system that is based on a meritocracy where only the best get through and women aren't getting through the system, then you're clearly recruiting women who lack the merit to progress. So therefore, your recruiting team needs to have a good talking to because who are these women that they're bringing into the organization? They're not bringing in women who are talented. So therefore, your recruiting team is the problem. Now, the point of that story was that I got the organization to acknowledge there was a problem and I wasn't concerned about where they first acknowledged the problem. But what I was determined to do was to get them to acknowledge that there was a problem. And through that conversation, you know, you could see the aha moment that we have a problem and we're going to have to look at that. Problem. Yeah. And you've moved on to meritocracy. And I can't tell you how many times I hear leaders saying, yep, I get biased. Yep. I get it has an impact. Yep, 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 yep. But I do have a meritocratic team. So what do you say <laughs> to your leaders who say, yep, I'm, this is a meritocracy? Because we all want to believe that. Don't we? we all want to believe that, but it's, it's based on a couple of fallacies. So I say meritocracy is a myth for a couple of reasons. One, the system that built the meritocracy is likely a system that was built by a group of people who are very similar. So what you see as having merit is also just a function of your subjective view of the world, and we all have a different worldview. So the whole concept of meritocracy, all it means is that in our system, you are seen as having value. That's really what it boils down to. 
There is no universal version of meritocracy, but more concerning is that people never stop to reframe. So in organisations that don't attract and progress women, I always reframe it and I say, are you comfortable with me saying that women lack the merit to progress in your organisation? And unsurprisingly, most people aren't willing to say that out loud, yet they're very willing to say we have a meritocracy, which is exactly the same conversation, but framed very differently. So on some level, the meritocracy is just about spin. It's just about spin on a very negative outcome that no one wants to own. But by saying we take the best and the brightest, you get to a stroke the egos of the leaders who actually take the meritocracy to the next level. And you also, depending on the people left out of the meritocracy, Sadly, you get them to start believing they're the problem. And we see it, you know, the research that shows that women will see a job description and will want to fulfill at least eight of the conditions before even considering themselves for that job, whereas men will languish at about five and be quite confident is because this meritocracy myth has told people, if I work in a meritocracy and I too believe that and I'm a woman, my progression is based on my own inadequacy. And so I'm going to work harder to do more, to prove more, because clearly I'm not good enough. So when we even talk about imposter syndrome, all of this can be linked back to this whole meritocracy myth that we've been peddling for far too long. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you like people to do more of less of and I I guess I'm saying now not just leaders but they are people but people more generally in workplaces if they observe bias now I guess how can they observe it they they see an inequitable concept within a process or more likely they just hear some stuff that's going on some comments on behavior I guess I'm talking about speak up but I've got some views on the language around speak up and the burden that that gives people But we do have a responsibility, don't we? We all have an accountability for improving our own workplace. Yeah, so I think it goes one step back. Before you speak up, you need to listen up. Because one of the things I'm challenged by, and I've done it myself for a lot of my career, is that we often create solutions without asking the people whether that's the solution they want and need. So before you speak up on someone else's behalf, take the time to listen to what they want. Listen to what people say feels equitable to them. Listen to how they want to be treated. So a great example is around language. There are certain terms that maybe were more acceptable where, you know, in the 60s and the 50s, I'll take coloured as an example. Something that in Britain, at least we can all appreciate, is no longer the right way to refer to people. But it was at one point in our history, it was the way that people were normalised. Now, the challenge is, especially with cross-generational working, is that there are some people in the workplace who may have been used and accustomed to using those words, and I understand that. But the point at which a colleague, for instance, says to you, I don't like that word, I feel uncomfortable, and I'd rather you didn't refer to me in that way, should be the point at which you listen and then you take action. Instead, what we often hear is, well, that's just who I am, can't teach an old dog new tricks, and that's unacceptable. So I think it's really important to first listen to hear how people want to be treated and then take action based on that. And I think that is one of the big missing links is the ability to listen first and speak second. Yeah, I I said I'd ask you about this because when we met before, you told me that you had recently ran some focus groups for straight white men. And I said to you, I think on that call, haven't we had enough of them already? Why do we need a focus group? We've had centuries where we listened up to them. 
Yeah, I don't think we did actively listen to white men. I think that white men have infused a lot of the systems that we work by, but largely that has been subconscious. I'd like to believe, and I, you know, I have the strong belief that there was a cabal of straight white men in a darkened room creating processes to deliberately, now I'm going to be accused of being naive. But in the workplace, I'm going to be very specific to the workplace, not the general world and how economies, et cetera, work. But in the workplace, there aren't groups of directors, senior leaders in darkened rooms figuring out how to have the worst impact on all the rest of the workplace. We're all dealing with centuries long and beyond systems that have seeped into the corporate world and that we have the responsibility to try and unravel, understand And I think it's disingenuous for anyone to say that they do inclusion work. So you can say you do diversity work and ignore straight white men, because that's not what diversity is about. Diversity is about the biggest, largest mix. But you can't do inclusion work and ignore straight white men. And for me, as Director of Inclusion, Diversity and Belonging, it's my job to make sure everyone belongs in the organisation, that everyone finds a place the organization and when they look left and they look right they look up and they look down they have a sense of being in the right place and it's why we Oliver Weimer we talk about everyone has the right to be included and the duty to be inclusive and so for me it was creating a space that was very determinant around what do straight white men think of this agenda because frankly because it was built on a foundation of diversity which was really largely about underrepresented groups back to my point about listen up we ran the risk of transferring the inequity to the group almost as a revenge plot as opposed to what we do to truly drive change and so this It sounded like a strange thing to do. For me, it was part of me living my purpose and values, which is true inclusion for every single person in our organisation. Yeah, I really love it. What was the impact of running those groups? What happened? Well, for me, it was a huge shift as a black woman. Being behind, being the mind behind that idea, I think helped to debunk some myths you know, challenge some biases about what my agenda could be. It would have been easy for me to focus on racial equity, black representation, gender equality. Those would have been quick wins for me, right? I understand them. My listening has been attuned for years on those. So it really helped break the bias, I think, and really cement me as a truly inclusive leader. For me, I like to lead from the front. So if I'm asking everyone to be inclusive, then I have to role model those same inclusive behaviours. And, you know, I think it really cemented our belonging agenda. So understanding and giving people an outlet to see where they could belong, because a lot of the messaging does still lean towards diversity, because where you have underrepresentation, you tend to focus on that underrepresented group. And it was really easy to forget everyone else. And I made some friends out of it. I made some really great connections, got to connect with people as well beyond, you know, they say beauty is only skin deep, but got to connect beyond our skin color and got to connect on what do people value? What are our shared values? What are our shared ambitions, our shared thoughts and visions for our children, the next generation? And so it builds connection, which is also one of our fundamental principles of belonging is how do we drive connection? And for me, it helped to cement that connection both ways do you see just as a final point i guess ryan out of the three bits of the words in your job title diversity inclusion belonging have you found that you've been elevating that 
belonging word because actually if you can engender that in everyone it's the double triple whammy isn't it you get to include people and you get to surface differences but everything comes down to belonging doesn't it it really does belonging for us inclusion is the way an organization or a group of people make you feel so i can say to you come and sit with me at the lunch hall but if you sit there and you still feel a sense of foreboding and you still look around and you think, oh, my gosh, no one else like me is here. No one understands me. I don't feel comfortable. Then if we think of retention, we're not going to retain that person. It's when that person sits there and thinks, for whatever reason. So for some people, it is affinity bias, people who look like them. For other people, it's people who have similar culture and background and upbringing. It's different for everyone. But belonging is the tool that helps us identify what that thing is. It helps us to listen actively and it helps us to respond to those individual needs in a way that frankly drives retention, builds connection, and also on some level really amplifies well-being as well and psychological safety. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, I could talk to you forever, but uh, you do have a very big day job. So look, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. It's been so fascinating listening to you and getting to know you. Thank you, Roya, and have a really great day. Thank you so much, Victoria. This was great.